growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. What about Jesus? And and Oprah says, what about Jesus? And they apparently say, he's the only way. And Oprah begins to say, he can't be the only way. Jesus can't possibly be the only way. There are many paths to God. There are many emanations to God, and, and you choose the one that's right for you. And listen, I'm not picking on Oprah, but she's wrong about this. There's an old saying that goes, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That saying is meant to emphasize the importance of being exact. Nowhere is that more true than when it comes to what you believe about God. We live in a world today that doesn't believe that it's all about Him. Quite frankly, we live in a world today that says it's all about you. The best-selling book and then later movie Eat, Pray, Love would be a classic example of that. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We're in week two of our series in the book of Colossians entitled, It's All About Him. The Colossian church had begun to be invaded by false teaching that threatened to undermine the doctrinal foundation of the church. Particularly under attack was the person of Jesus Christ, both his sufficiency and authority. Paul is combating that by saying, listen, look, look, no, 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 You're, this guy is God. This one who came as God in the flesh, and here's what he's done. He is preeminent. He is above all of his creation. The Apostle Paul responds by sending this letter that emphasizes the doctrinal truths that were needed in Colossae in the first century and are just as needed in the church today. In our study this week, Pastor Clay is presenting the second aspect of our study, Christ preeminent. We're glad you've joined us today. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's Crosswalk message. been hanging around cross-culture for much at all, you know that I like to push you. I like to cause you to begin to think theologically. It is my responsibility as the pastor of a local flock to teach you the truth of God's Word in such a way that it affects your life. And so it is my role, it is my job, it is my calling to present the Word of God in such a way that you would want to learn it. Or at least listen to it. If I fail to do that today, then for that I do apologize in advance. But these truths that we are studying are too precious to skip over. They are too important to simply turn the page and, oh, that's, that's too hard. Let's just move on to something else. We are in the book of Colossians. And we are learning that it's all about Him. That's important for us because we live in a world today that doesn't believe that it's all about Him. Quite frankly, we live in a world today that says it's all about you. It's all about your choices. It's all about your happiness. It's all about your path. And you find that where you find that and whatever works for you best, that's all that really matters. Uh, the best-selling book and then later movie Eat, Pray, Love would be a classic example of that. That where you find your happiness, where you find your truth, where you find your, your philosophical or religious uh, belief system, that's, that's fine, that's for you. False teaching, false doctrine was creeping into the church at Colossae. 
And Paul writes this letter to combat that teaching that was creeping into the church at Colossae. And so last week in chapter 1, Paul opens, and and the way I laid it out here, we we saw this beautiful example. We we had Christ presented in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you were with us, you may vaguely remember that. And, and we, we looked at this fact as we walked through verses 1 through 14 that, that Jesus Christ who delivers and redeems us. Paul talks about that fact and we walk through just the beauty of that and what it is that he's redeemed us from and how he delivered us. And he's Jesus Christ who empowers us. He's the one that gives us the strength. And I, and I said last week, and I'll repeat this again uh, in case you've forgotten or in case you weren't here. Uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, you have to figure it out at some point that you cannot do this Christian thing. You can't do this Christian walk in yourself. That void of the power of God working in you and through you, you will fail miserably at this thing. You will get frustrated and somewhere along the way you'll say, what's the use? I quit, I walk away, it doesn't do any good, this, this Jesus stuff just doesn't even work. No, He empowers us and Jesus Christ changes us. He's the one that makes us into men and women who reflect his image rather than men and women that we used to be prior to Christ. He's Christ presented. We're going to look at them a little more extensively in a couple of weeks. But the primary culprits in bringing false doctrine, false teaching, false beliefs into the church at Colossae were apparently Two separate groups known as the Judaizers and the Gnostics, or at least an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism may not have officially really emerged, but certainly the early tenets of it were beginning to to infect some of the, the churches, even in the first century. Now, I mentioned them this morning, even though we'll look at them a little more extensively in a couple of weeks, I mentioned them this morning because the second aspect of of this being all about him that we're going to look at today is Christ preeminent. And part of the, the teaching of the Judaizers and the, and the Gnostics, and who were they? Who were the Judaizers and Gnostics? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a trick question. They were the people that were beginning to bring false doctrine into the church at Colossae. Part of the teaching of the, of the Gnostics and, and the Judaizers, part of what they, their, their influence was, was they were, they were diminishing, they were diminishing both the, uh, both the, the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They were downplaying or diminishing or destroying, I love putting them letters together, the sufficiency and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to combat them. Just exactly what do I mean when I say Christ preeminent? Well, according to several online dictionaries, preeminent means superior to or notable above all others. Outstanding, greatest in importance or degree of significance or achievement. Having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. We're in Colossians chapter 1. We're in verses 15 through 22 this morning. If you brought a Bible, I uh, invite you to open it to those very pages and follow along in in your Bibles or 
as the text appears on the screen. Before I read this morning, I would like to pray for us. Lord, thanks for each person who is here. They are precious in your sight. And I believe very strongly in your sovereignty, and I believe that they are not here by accident. Whether they're a long time attended across culture or whether they've walked in the doors for the first time, I just don't believe is by accident. And I don't believe it's uh, to waste their time. I believe that your, your purposes in gathering us together includes the opportunity to worship you and the benefits and blessings that go with that. And part of that worship experience is the opportunity to be instructed by your word, which is, as I often say, truth without any mixture of error. It is quick and alive, as the writer of Hebrews says. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide soul and spirit, even joint and marrow. I am simply your messenger boy today, and I am honored to be so. But Father, uh, the subject matter is uh, one that requires some thinking. And maybe these folks have had a busy week and they're tired. Maybe they uh, sat up too late last night and they're tired. Maybe their minds are consumed with uh, pressures uh, and uh, trials and tribulations that they're going through in life. And... and, uh, The enemy can use those things, I believe, just to come in and try and steal away our focus and our attention. But Paul's trying to tell us something very important in this letter. All of your word is very important. I don't mean to diminish any of it, Lord God. But today, as we look at Christ preeminent, I ask that you would make us alert, focused. Lord, would you block out any distractions that that might uh, happen, that we would just... Listen to your word, take it in, think about it, and of course, prayerfully, ultimately apply it uh, to our lives. Again, thanks so much, Lord, for each person who's here. I I, I really am grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated, And hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He is Christ preeminent. Paul begins to build this 
case for the greatness of our God. And he, he starts right out with this idea in verse 15 where he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you've read that verse before, uh, some of you might say, well, it seems like I've, some people have, have used that verse to teach something different before. And you would be right. Some have. Uh, oftentimes, perhaps uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or, or others who, who diminish the deity and the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, you might have heard some one of them use that particular verse to say, see there? Uh, see that verse right there? That proves it. That proves that that uh, God is that, that that the Son is less than the Father. It says right there, He was the firstborn of creation, so that means He was created. He may have been the first to be created, but He was created, and then everything else was created. So that that proves it right there. Well, let me just say that Orthodox Christianity from the very beginning would have no problem stating that the Son of God in the flesh had a beginning. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit um, came upon Mary and she conceived, she became pregnant, and she gave birth to a child whom they named Jesus. Certainly, Orthodox Christianity would say, yes, God in the flesh had a beginning. But that's very different than saying God the Son had a beginning. I want you to listen to me here. This is, this is important. You might even want to write this down if you have time. There was a time when the Son of God in the flesh was not. But there has never been a time, and even before time began, when the Son of God was not. Let me take just a minute and read that again to you. You're thinking, right? You're alert, focused. There was a time when the Son of God in the flesh was not. But there has never been a time, and even before time began, when the Son of God was not. In other words, 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on flesh and became a man, Jesus. But the Son of God has always existed throughout all of eternity. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that's you and me, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So, firstborn of all creation... Here in chapter 1 and verse 15 refers not to an event, but rather to his rank or title. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn over all of creation. And Paul argues that point first based on his uh, position. He is preeminent over his creation because of Christ's position. That's what he argues it from. Notice what it says in the verse when it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, now Paul's, he's, he's preeminent over his creation. And Paul says, here's why. 
because of his position. And he starts out and he says, he is the, Im- the, he is the image of the invisible God. Image here in this verse, according to Warren Wiersbe, means the exact representation and revelation. The exact representation and revelation. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, what Paul is saying is when you're looking at Jesus Christ, you're looking at God. You're looking at God in the flesh. And he is preeminent because he has that position. He is exalted. He is God. That's who he is. And that's the point that Paul begins to make there. Um, uh, Hebrews, I think the writer of Hebrews uh, says the same thing. Watch this. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Uh, Michael Pope read it as an act of worship today, but the Apostle John, when he opens his, his gospel account, in the beginning was the Word. Now watch this. We don't know who the Word is yet. If we're reading that for the very first time, in the beginning was the Word. So, so we're not sure who this is, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So whoever the Word is, he's with God. Oh, but wait, and the Word was God. Oh, so not only is the Word with God, the Word is God. And He was in the beginning with God. God had no beginning, so the Word obviously had no beginning. And notice the similarity between what Paul writes in Colossians and what John says here. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And watch this, verse 14. And the Word... Remember, who was that? And the Word became what? Say that word. Say it again. Flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. We could see the glory of God for the very first time because He was right there in our midst, or 2,000 years ago. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, theologians, who's John talking about? That's right. Jesus. By the way, Jesus himself said this in uh, John chapter 14. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When you're looking at me, you're looking at God, is what Jesus is saying. He is preeminent because of his position. Now, someone might argue, yeah, okay, I hear what you say, but how does that prove it? How do, you, how do you know that that's what that text means? How do you know that it doesn't mean that he actually was the first thing created and then everything else was created? How do you know it doesn't mean that? Well, uh, there are numerous passages of Scripture in the Bible that point to the eternality, the eternal nature of God the Son. Some of those verses that we just listed either imply it or expressly state it. But probably the greatest evidence that firstborn in verse 15 refers to his, his status or his rank rather than an event, probably the, the most direct evidence is found in the very same chapter, Colossians chapter 1, and verse 18, which says that he is the first, and we're going to read it again in a minute, but it says he is the firstborn from the dead. Y'all with me? You focused? Well, if... 
if firstborn in verse 15 means that he was the first thing created, then firstborn from the dead must mean that he was the first one to be raised from the dead, right? Well, now, wait a minute. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament prophet Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead, 1 Kings chapter 17. The Old Testament prophet Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. Jesus himself raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Matthew chapter 9, raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead in Luke chapter 7, and raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Clearly, Jesus was not the first one to rise from the dead. So, firstborn from the dead can't mean that Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. It must mean something else. And what it means is he has first preeminence of all who have risen from the dead, from all who have conquered death. He is preeminent. He is exalted because of his position, because he is God. He's preeminent over his creation. And... Paul argues this not only from Christ's position, but he goes on and he argues it from a second point. He argues it also from Christ's pleasure. He is preeminent over his creation because of Christ's pleasure. Look what it says in verse 16. For by him all things were created. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, by the way, these next two. But for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth. Do you see the similarity between what John wrote and what Paul wrote here? All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and... Whoop, what's that little word right there? For him. All things were created by him and for him. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, despite... What Richard Dawkins or Isaac Asimov or any other atheist might tell you. You and me and the universe in which we exist are not a cosmic accident. We did not simply stumble into existence. We were created by a God who, newsflash, desires a relationship with you who loves you and desires to have you experience all that his creation has in its fullness and for you to know him intimately and intentionally. It was his pleasure to do so. Listen to me, he created us not because he had to, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. He was no less God if he'd ever created any of this. He was no less God if he'd ever made us. He didn't need us to bow down and worship him. It's never been about that. It's been about a loving, holy God's desire to say, I want a relationship with you, Rocky. I want a relationship with you, Steve. I want a relationship with you, Clay. It was his pleasure. And uh, then one other idea here, uh, Christ's power. He's preeminent over his creation. Yes, because of his position, he's God. Because of his pleasure and because of his power. Look at how Paul continues to build on this thing in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this very universe in which we live in continues to exist because God in his might and power holds it 
together. It is a fascinating thing. If you ever look in just to the study of the complexity and the intricacy of the universe in which we live and the various systems that are within this universe. It's an amazing thing to think how it all works and the, 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 the axis of the earth and its rotation and its movement through space and the sun's relationship to it and the moon and, and our ecological system and, and our, our bodies. All of these things that amazingly operate. The writer of Hebrews, I mentioned this verse, the first part of this verse a minute ago, but to go back to verse uh, uh, 3 of chapter 1. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is preeminent over his creation. Now listen to me. Uh, we're going to move on here real quickly. But this is impo- here's why this is important. Part of the teaching of the Gnostics as I said, was to diminish the sufficiency and the authority of Christ. Paul is combating that by saying, listen, look, look, no, 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 this guy is God. This one who came is God in the flesh. And here's what he's done. He, ha- he is preeminent. He is above all of his creation. And, Paul goes on, not only is he preeminent over all of his creation, he's preeminent over his church as well. He's preeminent over his church. Look at this. Let me just read it from the screen. He is also head of the body, the church. You know who that is, right? That's any of us here who profess Christ as our Savior. He is head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We already discussed that. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. We'll talk about that in a minute. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There's so much there that we could talk about. There's so much to to contemplate and, and we could look at for hours and time simply won't do justice to it this morning. But he is preeminent over his church. He has first place over his church. And Paul builds this case for his, his church when he says he is the head of the body. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself could have to come first place in everything. Now watch this, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. It's important. Paul is very specific about the word that he uses in verse 19 when he says fullness. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. Paul is very intentional about using that word to the church in Colossae. Here's why. Fullness, or the Greek word was pleroma, was a technical term that the Gnostics used. Who are the Gnostics? Come on, who are the Gnostics? False teachers, bringing false teaching into the church in the latter part of the first century and certainly into the second century, um, and as we'll see, still today. Uh, So, uh, pleroma, translated fullness, was a technical term that the Gnostics would use in their belief system. Pleroma stood for this area that the, the Gnostics taught was between God and, and man, earth. 
Between us and God was the pleroma. And the pleroma was inhabited by, the, by, by these many, what they would call emanations or mediators from God. Of which Jesus was simply one of many. Now, do you see why Paul is taking this head on? Because they're saying, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he, yeah he's, he, he's, one of the, he's one of the emanations. He's one of the mediators. Yeah, you got to go through him too. But there are many mediators. There are many emanations. There are many paths to God in the Pleroma. And so Paul takes that word and he seizes on that word. He basically beats the Gnostics over the head with, with their own language. The word only appears 17 times in the entire New Testament. Eight of those are right here in his letter to the church in Colossae. Paul basically says, you want to talk about fullness? I'll give you fullness. I'll tell you about fullness. It's him. In him, all the fullness dwells. In him, everything is. It's him. He is preeminent over his church. Let me just give it to you real quickly why he is preeminent over his church. Looks like this. Uh, He paid for us. And you can go back and you can read in those verses that we read just a moment ago. He paid for us. He brought peace to us. And he presented us to himself. He paid for us. Uh, notice the emphasis, by the way, on, uh, on the body. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. The Gnostics, the Gnostics taught that all matter is corrupt. All matter is evil. And so the idea that, that God would take on flesh was something the Gnostics just simply could not get their mind. No, no, that couldn't be because, because matter is corrupt, it's evil, and God would never take on flesh. And Paul says, listen, not only did he take on flesh, he took on flesh for you. He took on flesh to pay your payment that you could never pay yourself. That's what he did. He took that on for you. He did that for you. He paid for us. And he signed the peace treaty between God and man in his own blood and presented us to himself. That's who he is. Now, listen, let me wrap this thing up. Can you see why this is so important for us today? Uh, Probably most of y'all have. Y'all seen the video, that uh, episode of, of Oprah, where she gets into this argument with apparently some Christians in her audience. And apparently they're talking about eternity. And one of them, you can kind of hear in the background, says something about what about Jesus? And and Oprah says, what about Jesus? And they apparently say, you can kind of hear it, they say, well, he's the only way. And Oprah begins to say, he can't be the only way. Jesus can't possibly be the only way. And she begins to, to give her explanation. They begin to argue back and forth. See, it's not called Gnosticism anymore, ladies and gentlemen, but, but it's alive and well. It's the idea that there are many paths to God. There are many emanations to God, and, and you choose the one that's right for you. And listen, I'm not picking on Oprah. I, I wish I'd have been in her studio audience and got the free trip to Australia. And, and, and she has done, uh, done a lot of good for a lot of people. And she's given huge amounts of money uh, to help all over the world, uh, for, to help women and, and just people in general. But she's wrong about this. And when you have the listening ear of tens of millions of people, or if you have nobody's ear, you better be right about this. Because your eternal 
destiny hangs in the balance. There is a tendency these days to downplay the importance of doctrine in the church. And I've heard this. I've been to the seminars where, they, where they've told me this. and They've tried to convince me of this. Just give the people, just give the people what they want. Give them, give them three ways to happiness. Give them three steps to financial freedom. Give them how to have a strong marriage. Listen, I'm not saying that any of those things in and of themselves are bad. I'm just saying if it's not built on solid doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, it's a waste of time. Because he is preeminent. It's all about him. Well, we've just heard Pastor Clay explain the importance of understanding Christ's preeminence. The false teachers were denying the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to God. We find that belief alive and well in our culture today. It's become socially unacceptable to claim Jesus as the only way. But the Bible makes it very clear that there was only one substitutionary payment for our sins. Jesus Christ paid the debt. We could never pay ourselves. And as Pastor Clay said, made it possible for us to have peace with God. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.